welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor for the Digital Monetary Institute at OMFIF, and I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Whitworth, Policy Director for EMEA at Ripple. Hi, Lewis. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, so we wanted to discuss uh, just the general topic of regulating the, the digital asset space, the crypto asset space. And I think it's Fundamentally, uh, there's a fundamental challenge there, which is that this is a very global asset class. Access is, is available globally, uh, but regulation takes place on, on a local basis, you know, typically nationally. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it's like for participants managing that challenge? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's a good point. Um, I think this is true, actually, probably for all of finance. It was, I think, Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England at the time, um, after the financial crisis in 2008, who said that banks are international in, in life and, and, and national in death. So this issue, that by national death, of course, you're talking about the regulation and the bailouts that happened then. But really what he's saying is that jurisdictions are country by country or eurozone by eurozone, um, but finance and well, finance uh, operates internationally. Now, what's interesting about the digital asset space is the speed of it and the fact that the institutions that we're used to intermediating these financial flows um, in the traditional financial sector predominantly banks, but all the, all the different parts of finance that we're all used to um, are different in, uh, in, in the digital asset space. And that's, I mean, that, that creates an interesting dynamic for a couple of reasons. Firstly, jurisdictions are still developing their crypto asset, digital asset regulatory frameworks. And secondly, some of these institutions themselves are changing uh, or they're different institutions to the ones we're used to. So there's, there's a couple of new things happening here. Uh, that need to get lined up. Now, I don't think this is fundamentally new or different. Uh, certainly the way that most uh, jurisdictions, most countries are going about regulating the spaces by saying where it looks like traditional finance, it should be regulated in a similar way to traditional finance or certainly have the same regulatory outcomes um, as, as traditional finance. So I think we're not starting completely from scratch. We're not completely blank canvas, but there is definitely something something interesting and something new about the digital asset regulation compared to traditional finance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's really interesting to watch uh, these different approaches developing around the world. Um, we just had uh, a week or two ago uh, the, the EU passing the, the MICA uh, regulation. Um, and, you know, there's, there's different approaches in, in various different jurisdictions. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, well, are there any kind of emerging areas of similarity in, in, the, in the types of approach that different jurisdictions are, are taking and, and maybe some of the key uh, points of difference as well? Yeah, it's interesting because I think a year ago we would be having a very different conversation. I think a year ago there was little similarity or coordination internationally. I think today it looks like most jurisdictions with one very large and uh, quite obvious exception. So what's interesting today is I think actually a lot of jurisdictions are tending towards the same approach towards regulating this space. And a year ago we would have looked at it very differently. Um, there was a lot less similarity, a lot less coordination in some cases uh, globally. There is one big international exception, which perhaps we can talk about later, but broadly, I would say most jurisdictions that have started the regulatory process around digital assets have ended up, perhaps not uh, deliberately, but have ended up more or less on the same track. So I think we've seen in most jurisdictions, you start off with AML, uh, counter-terrorist financing type of uh, regulations. Then you have registrations around the space. Then you have the development of 
Laws around stable coins is the thing most close to money or traditional money uh, in the digital asset space. And then you see uh, jurisdictions attempting to or starting to create a full regulatory framework, comprehensive framework for this. Um, we've seen that now, as you mentioned, Mika and the EU. The EU, I think, has been absolutely the front runner on this. But Singapore, Dubai, UK are all following very much the same tracks. I don't think this is a race to be the first. I don't necessarily think there's a first mover advantage, although it doesn't necessarily hurt. I think that in some cases there is a second mover advantage because you can see what works, you can see what doesn't work, and you can copy where good and you can diverge where, where, where it doesn't work for, you th- for your country. What I would say is, you know, this is not like in the banking, I don't think it's like in the banking sector where we're getting full coordinated international standards via the Basel Committee and which, which each country is going to have to implement. I think what's happening here is countries are reaching the same conclusions, but coming from their own institutional context and their own background in financial regulation. So they're taking similar steps, but perhaps from different starting points. Do you think, uh, do you think we'll move towards a situation where we have a kind of equivalent of the Basel Committee to develop some international consensus on this? Or is it going to continue to be this kind of, uh, you know, national approach reaching similar conclusions? It's interesting. Um, you know, the FSB, the IS are doing a lot of work in this space. Uh, they have a lot of consultations out. Riffle replies to them in, in, in relevant uh, areas. I think there is a desire, both in the public sector and certainly on the private sector, to have as much international coordination as is feasible. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to end up with a set of standards or a common taxonomy, but it might mean that we have a common approach to national taxonomies. You know, from a, from a, industry point of view, what's helpful is that there are similar definitions of terms or similar approaches to things. It doesn't have to be identical one for one, but you know, that might be nice, but it doesn't need to be. Um, similarly, cooperation on the supervision and enforcement side, I think, is also important. So we have well, you know, college, college, uh, colleges of supervisors exist in the traditional banking sector. There's a lot of equivalents and frameworks and things like that. We don't, again, we don't need to necessarily recreate that identically. And actually, there are some problems in, in the traditional financial sector around the way that we do equivalents. It's, it's a bit unwieldy. I think most regulators would probably agree with that. Um, but something like that can be helpful. And actually, I think one thing from the UK's uh, recent crypto asset consultation, which closed at the end of April, um, is that they are quite forward leaning in this. The HMT is quite forward leaning in saying that they want or they, they encourage the development of equivalents and international standards and things like that. Now, this isn't a unilateral gift by one country, by definition, but it's great to see that out there in the public space and to have that dynamic pushing forward. Excellent. Okay. And you you alluded earlier to uh, one big international exception. Are we talking about the US there? We are. Yeah. (laughs) Just uh, wanted to uh, make that clear. You also mentioned uh, Dubai uh, earlier, and I, I know they've had some some interesting uh, developments there. Can you tell us a little bit about the the regulatory environment there, and, and I guess what's uh, what's kind of driven the, the progress there? Yeah, uh, so Dubai is a, a great example of some of these trends. From the, you know, okay, so you asked what's, what's driven this. From the political side, there is a clear political will to make Dubai a global center of excellence for digital assets, for Web3, um, and the future economy or future digital economy. That, that's clear, there's clearly a huge political will for that. What's interesting is how they've gone about that in the digital asset space or virtual asset space, as they, as they tend to call it. They created a new regulator institution, VARA, Virtual Asset Regulator. And uh, this was a year ago uh, that it was founded. 
So I think this is the first and perhaps still only dedicated virtual asset regulator in the world. Most other countries have taken the approach of folding virtual asset regulation into an existing institution. I'm sure there are pros and cons to, to both, or you could think one is better than the other, but personally don't have a particularly strong opinion on it. And then Vara has just this year created uh, or published its rule books for virtual assets firms, uh, virtual asset service providers. So in a sense, that's kind of doing what Mika has done in the EU or the end of Mika will have done in the EU. These rule books are very interesting, the approach uh, Vara has taken, which is uh, they have four plus seven rule books, um, is the way to phrase it. They have four compulsory rule books that every firm has to uh, abide by. This is things like compliance and governance, perfectly standard things, basically to ensure that the institution of the company itself is operating the correct way. But then these seven rule books are activities based. So you'll only need to follow the rule books for the activity you intend to do. I have a PhD in political economy and financial regulation. In this, I was arguing very strongly for activity based regulation rather than institution based regulation. I like the VAR approach because it seems to me a step in that direction. The benefit that I see in uh, in activity-based regulation is that it unbundles different services. So not just do you not have the, uh, would a firm have the compliance burden for activities it doesn't necessarily need to intend to undertake, but also I think as soon as you're regulated for a certain activity, you will probably naturally end up undertaking that activity. And that creates a certain business model herding, where because of the regulations allowing you to do certain things, firms end up all doing more or less same kind of thing. And that, I think, is a bit of a disappointment to the promise of innovation, because innovation, by definition, is trying to do something new or do something that people haven't thought of before. If you're boxing them in through regulations that say, OK, but you have to do it in this way, you've limited massively the scope for innovation. So I'm very optimistic that VARA is actually creating the stable framework that every firm, I think, around the world in this space is calling for in their jurisdictions. So they, know, they have the business certainty to be able to grow their crypto asset, virtual asset businesses but yet still leave space open for innovation around it. Yeah, I can see that, uh, the advantage of that approach. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how the the market, the DeFi market, I guess in particular, has uh, has responded to, to this approach? Well, less on DeFi, to be honest. I mean, I think industry as a whole has been very encouraged by, first by Dubai's political ambitions, secondly by the uh, establishment of VARA, and thirdly by the publication of VARA's rule books. There's a lot of interest, right? I mean, Dubai is one of the jurisdictions that everyone is now talking about as leading the way or one of the more progressive regimes for, for crypto asset regulation. Now, progressive doesn't mean easy. It's, it's quite clear that VARA is being strict uh, and it tends to be strict in its authorizations processes. Its rule books are actually very detailed, probably one of the most detailed ones that we've seen out yet. Um, I, I wouldn't, I would, I would expect Mika when the final rules are written at the end of this year, early next year by the, by the European Supervisory Authorities to reach a similar level of detail as VAR is at now. So they're progressive, they're providing uh, the certainty, as I say, that they need, that firms need, um, but in a fairly rigorous way. And I think that's been well received, certainly by the large firms, the large players in this space, because regulation fundamentally is good. Regulation promotes innovation, the way I've just talked about, but also for businesses, it provides certainty. And for consumers, it can build trust because they know that these firms are being properly regulated, properly supervised, properly authorized or only authorized in the right circumstances. So VARA has certainly put Dubai on the map in this place. It was already important because of um, the DIFC's approach to crypto assets. But what, what the instigation or what the um, institution of VARA has done is allow onshore activity for crypto assets in Dubai. 
So Dubai, well, UAE is quite a complex regulatory environment because there are these different emirates and there are the free zones. DIFC is the Dubai International um, free zone. It has its own regime for crypto assets regulation or, uh, underneath the DFSA, the Financial Services Authority there. Um, that allows firms based in Dubai to do business offshore, so outside Dubai. VARA is onshore. It allows you to do business inside Dubai. And that, that's what's really sort of filled in the missing piece of this puzzle. Yeah, I think it's something that we, we hear time and time again uh, from participants in this space, that it's not overly strict regulation that's the problem. It's a lack of a lack of clarity and, and certainty about, about what's needed. And it sounds like uh, it sounds like Dubai have taken a, a good approach there. Uh, do you expect to see, you know, from a business perspective, more uh, crypto businesses start up in Dubai or uh, or, you know, set up offices there if they're international? Uh, is that something that, you know, we're starting to see already or, or hoping to see further down the line? I, I would certainly expect to see that. Um, I think businesses are calling out for jurisdictions that give a clear steer on how they're going to approach crypto assets. And the clearest steer is by regulation and political will. We've seen and we're seeing a lot of large firms talking about where it makes most sense to be based. Um, the CEO of Coinbase was in London recently talking exactly about this. So yes, I do think that we will see more firms establishing themselves in, in Dubai. Now, whether these are startups, perhaps, whether these are international firms using it as a regional base or even perhaps a global base, you know, that, that it will be up to the firm and according to what they need to do. But absolutely, you know, Ripple's had an office in Dubai for a number of years now. Um, we see the ecosystem just growing and getting better, and we're very happy to be part of that. Yeah, excellent. I think, uh, you know, there was a fear over the past couple of years that, you know, there was a risk of regulatory arbitrage in, in terms of businesses going to places where the regulation was was lax uh, and, you know, even giving them the biggest uh, leeway to possibly not act in the in the safest way so i guess that uh, is good to see you know clear clear policies uh being drawn up and, and a preference for those in among businesses that want to that want to do things the right way yeah and look i, I mean you're right i think regulatory arbitrage is one of the big risks of the current uh regulatory framework internationally right now as i say most jurisdictions are mainly moving ahead in the same way but not all of them um and i think the big jurisdictions are for good reason but actually it's we as an industry and we as an international community really need there to be rules kind of across across the globe. Regulatory arbitrage is one of the big risks in the international environment right now for, for our space. And I think you know, we're getting there. As I said, a lot of jurisdictions are moving in, towards, in similar directions. Um, we are seeing international cooperation at the international organizational level. So that's good. So I think this risk is reducing over time, but there's definitely still some way to go. You mentioned the UK earlier. Can you tell us a little bit about where the the UK policy approach is, is at, at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So the UK, well, as I think I mentioned a bit earlier, the UK has just closed its consultation, public consultation on a crypto asset framework. And that was uh, by the UK Treasury, HMT. That set out the government's approach and proposals for what a regulatory framework should look like for for crypto assets. In some ways, that's similar to Mika. It's, it's not a copy. It's certainly not same as. Honestly, I wouldn't even say it's a reaction to Mika. It's just the UK doing it in its own time and according to its own institutions. So that process will go there. Firms have had a huge amount of engagement amongst themselves in industry, also with the government during this consultation period. Um, they, I'm sure they've all submitted relevant consultations. Ripple has submitted our response to this. As a very top line on that consultation, I would say it's very good. It's very encouraging. It's certainly 
taking the best of international best practice and putting it, making it make sense for the UK context. There are some areas where we'd like to see more details and see what's coming out of that. Um, so we've replied along those lines, but it's definitely, it's definitely in line with global best practice and it will stand the UK in very good stead for the government's ambitions of becoming a crypto hub, a global crypto hub. Now, alongside that, there's also the financial stability uh, and markets, sorry, financial services and markets bill, uh, which is going through Parliament. And that should hopefully, unless, yeah, that, that should hopefully get passed uh, later this year. What that does is it brings crypto assets and it defines crypto assets. It brings them into the regulatory perimeter, the financial regulatory perimeter. Essentially, that means it gives the FCA powers directly in the space. So what I would expect is by the end of this year, uh, the government has digested the responses to the consultation and come out with its reply saying what it's going to do. The, the Financial Services and Markets Bill has passed and become an act, which gives the FCA powers in this space. So then the FCA has a clear mandate and the clear powers to actually create the detailed regulatory rules that will then apply to firms. So I would expect next year rules to exist in the UK for crypto asset firms. And that's essentially the same timing as Mika. It's the same timing as many jurisdictions around the world. That's oh, a very exciting time. We've, you've talked a fair amount about the, the areas of, of commonality and it's very encouraging that uh, people are, are adopting similar approaches. Um, are there any areas of difference uh, that are emerging, you know, people taking jurisdictions, taking uh, differing approaches that, that might have, uh, you know, consequences for how the market develops? It's a really good question. I think there's two things to say here. Firstly, the United States is not on the same track. We've alluded to this already. Um, I think we're still waiting to see legislative and regulatory certainty in the United States. Um, I don't know when that will come, but I hope it's sooner rather than later. So that's one thing to say, and that's a major and obvious point of difference. More substantively, or on the details, uh, I think for where we're at, no, I don't see huge divergence. But for the future, I'm not sure we have convergence yet. So I'm talking about things like DeFi, staking, um, some stuff around sustainability um, requirements for blockchains or crypto asset firms. I think there, we, there isn't yet the sort of international best practice I was talking about in terms of crypto asset regulation. Um, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. I mean, the main one is, for example, around DeFi. We don't yet have a good definition of DeFi, of decentralized, really, um, for regulatory purposes. And it's quite hard from a conceptual point of view to understand what regulating a fully decentralized protocol would look like, given that the traditional approach to regulating all finance that has been essentially carried across to crypto asset regulation is to regulate a centralized actor, be it an individual or an institution. But if there isn't a centralized actor, it's quite hard to understand what to do. So that really needs to be worked out by anyone, frankly, globally, and then it will get picked up, I think, by, by others. But that does need to happen before we can see convergence, I think. Yeah, I think uh, DeFi is something that we hear a lot uh, of differences, opinions, or, or still a, a lack of certainty on, on how to regulate that. So, uh, yeah, a lot of questions remaining to be solved there. Um, I wanted to turn to CBDC. I wanted to, to come to the question of uh, central bank digital currency. Uh, obviously, it's quite separate from the, the cryptocurrency uh, regulation, but, you know, still a digital asset. And I think, um, uh, there's kind of a question on how it'll fit into the different regulatory approaches that are being taken around the world. Um, have you got any thoughts on that for, for any of the jurisdictions we've discussed? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very important point, right? Because we've been talking about the private sector development of digital assets. And now it's, you know, we should look at the public sector side too. 
Um, I think I mean, my overarching comment about CBDCs as a whole is a ripple. We see them as part of the future mix of money. So we think there'll be physical, digital, private and public money. They will coexist to a large extent. The ones that already exist do coexist in, in the world today. You know, we have cash, we have bank deposits, we have digital payments. That's not very complicated. I personally don't see an uh, end state where one of those four solutions dominates all the other ones. So then what becomes important is the interoperability between them. Um, the fact that within this mix of money, firstly, the end user understands which one they're holding and what the different characteristics of it are. You know, public money is fully backed by a central bank and fully safe. Private money might have other characteristics. So that's important, the transparency of what they're holding. And secondly, the ability to move seamlessly between one and the other. And that means technologically seamlessly. It also, I think, means free, uh, frankly, as well as instantly and all that stuff. Um, there shouldn't be a cost to move between one type of money to another if these are all indeed full types of money, as currently you know, swapping between cash and a, bank, and a bank deposit is considered the same part of money, even though one is private and one is public. So that, that's kind of how we see CBDCs um, fitting into, as I say, the future, the future overall mix of money. Now, there is a really interesting question there around cross-border use of CBDCs. You know, Ripple is a cross-border payments firm where we use our blockchain technology to support um, banks and, and, and fintechs make cross-border payments is a better way of putting it. CBDCs will need to be exchangeable between themselves. It, I often find it interesting that people talk about CBDCs as helping cross-border payments. I find that hard to understand because by definition, a CBDC is created by a central bank and central banks have a national jurisdiction. So you need something that will combine them. Now, that could be a private company like Ripple, as we already do with Fias and other other currencies. It could could be central bank, central bank through some of the stuff that this innovation hub is putting together as sort of technological solution. It could be through side chains and things like that. There are lots of different solutions, but they do need to be worked out and they need to be baked into the design right now. Your question was around different uh, regions and where we're going. I mean, going back to Dubai and the Middle East, there's a lot of interest in the region um, around crypto tech in general, but also CBDC specifically. I think, you know, so UAE has just announced a CBDC project that we, you know, we started talking about UAE already. Um, Qatar, Bahrain, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, they're all interested and they're all at different, different levels, different stages of their exploration there. Um, but they're clearly looking at this as a way to develop their overall digital asset financial, uh, sectors to smooth out cross-border payments, to improve trade financing, to do all these different things. Ripple globally has partnered with some countries uh, on CBDCs, Palau, um, Montenegro, and uh, Bhutan are the ones that, that are currently public. Um, again, these all have different objectives, and it depends on the country what the objective is for. I think certainly, you know, I'm based in London. A lot of the conversation around CBDCs around a digital pound or a digital euro, that's fine, that makes sense. I think a lot of the real world use cases are actually in other economies around the world where they can a CBDC can solve for a lot of issues uh, that the traditional financial sector can't. In talking about CD, I think the CBDC, I think really there's just one kind of thing to flag, which is the future proofing of it. Because we're doing companies around the world, central banks are doing this work today. Uh, but often the technology isn't necessarily tight and trusted, tested, uh, or it might be at the cutting edge for today, but it's quite difficult to update. So, for example, whenever we work with a central bank, we're, which we use, we use the XRP ledger, which is the ledger we, we use anyway. Um, you know, this has been going on for 10 years. It's updatable. It, it has quite a lot of features that other one, the other ledgers don't necessarily have. So it's quite easy to keep up to date. But I think it's important that a central bank doesn't develop a currency today, which may work very well for the next five years, but in 20 years will have to be completely recreated. 
Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. Well, I think uh, I think we should leave it there. Uh, a really interesting discussion, uh, as you've pointed out, a very dynamic area, a lot of uh, really interesting developments going on. So I hope we'll uh, have a chance to to revisit this uh, and check on the progress maybe in a few months or, or a little bit further down the line. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us today. Absolutely, thank you very much for having me. Great, great conversation. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Do make sure to follow us uh, on our social media. We're on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can find our podcast on Spotify and Podbean and On Demand on the OnFIF website. Do go there to check out our upcoming reports and events, particularly the DMI Symposium, which is on May uh, 10th and 11th. Thanks again for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the OnFIF podcast.